Welcome to The Kitchen Table, a conversation about faith, music, and culture. Join Shine.fm's ministry director, Brian McIntyre-Utter, and his son, Jake, around the table for this week's chat. Hi, welcome to The Kitchen Table. My name is Jake. And I'm Brian. And we are so glad to have you back for another episode of The Kitchen Table. If you are new to the program, we'll give you a quick rundown on why we started. Mm -hmm. We started this because Dad and I love communication. We love talking. And so, you know... We have the gift of gab. People who love to talk just do a podcast because that's what a podcast is, just listening to people talk randomly. But on a serious note, we wanted to encourage families and young adults and children to have faith discussions Mm -hmm. because we think it's so important. We've been doing it. I'm 20 years old now, almost 21 this year in December, which is crazy. We have always had these faith discussions and dad's always let an opportunity of having hard discussions of tough faith discussions. And so we wanted to encourage, and that's why we created this, a quick rundown of how the show is set up. So we do our faith discussion for about the first 20 to 30 minutes. And and, mm-hmm. it, and it's kind of a plethora. Lately, we've been doing a lot of the racial, we called it listen and learn mm-hmm. because we think that's important. And so we just kind of talk about that and we kind of tag along with that today, but you'll find out that later. And then we move into a segment called Music Matters. And in Music Matters, we just talk about music because we love music. And dad brings a new song. I bring a song of the week. And then dad goes back into the time vault, as we like to say, and brings an oldie but goldie. And so that's fun. And then we move into Culture Shock. And Culture Shock is just a quick segment where we talk about someone who's making a difference in culture today for Christ. Could be a celebrity. We've talked with actors and sports figures and newscasters. Mm -hmm. Or it can be your average Joe Schmo. So we'll be talking about someone who recently did something on Instagram Live that uh, really is making a difference. Coming up a little bit later. So our faith topic for today, super excited about this one. Uh, We have been talking a lot about race over the past several weeks. It's a simple series called Listen and Learn. We honestly believe that we need to listen and learn. So we've had guests on through this Listen and Learn series who has shared different perspectives on uh, racial injustice. We need to step up. The church needs to step up and help. This is the calling of God to make a difference. And so this week, we're super excited to have on with us our good friend, Dr. David Wesley. David is a professor of intercultural studies in Kansas City, Missouri. We actually knew David and his wife, Glenda, and their two children on the mission field. We served together in South America. We lived side-by-side housewise in Argentina when Jake was between between the ages of two and nine, he hung out with their kids. And yeah, but they were much older. They, they were a few years older. His son actually introduced me to my favorite movie, but mom wasn't happy because it was Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> Tim Burton. We've invited David because David's going to share a very unique, I don't know if we call it a process, a story of yeah. an experience that happened in his life and through his church that I think will really help us understand what is the truth of church's mission, the church is mission. The church must mm. be mission, and we're a part of that. David, so glad to have you with us today. We would love to have you just share this experience and how it all unfolded. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be with you. Let me kind of go back to the backstory of how I got to even to that point. When I came back to the U.S. from South America, where we had been missionaries, I started to explore various aspects of missions and how that looked differently. And especially since we were still missionaries, but we moved to the U.S. And I I kept thinking about what does that look like in the U.S. And so I began to explore several things. One of the things was short-term missions, uh, that an incredible growing number of people go on these short-term mission trips every year. 
It's estimated that over 2 million, well over 2 million people every year go from Christian churches and participate in some form of short-term mission. Many medical people do this. And, and I noticed that, and I also started to explore what was called congregational partnerships, where a congregation would partner for a long time or for a period of time with another congregation in another part of the world. And both of these, what was common was they were both this grassroots level of mission. It wasn't mission that was starting from either the administration of the organization or from missiologists or whatever. It was, it was grassroots. People were expressing what they felt God was leading them to do from the grassroots. So a couple of years ago, I started a research project to explore how different people around the world were understanding missions. And my goal was to start at the grassroots, to ask people in various different cultures, different countries, about how they understood missions and how they were experiencing it. I was curious to see, is the same thing I was discovering from the short-term mission experiences and other experiences in the U.S. experienced in other places around the world? And were people starting to think differently in some aspects about missions? Kind of an interesting part of this process, right before I got a grant to work on this research project, uh, it was quite ambitious. We were going to look in nearly every world region of the Church of the Nazarene. We were looking at several different languages and just have a broad scope of, of working with this. And I, I was asked to present part of this to one of the administrative parts of the church. And they were a little bit shocked that I was starting to look at the grassroots to understand missions instead of looking at it from the top. And the expression that was used, it kind of shocked me in the conversation. They said, well, we can't have the tail wagging the dog. And I kind of, I was just shocked I even heard that. And I thought, well, who is the tail and who is the dog? Hmm. And this understanding, I, I think it, it ties a lot of this, how we understand even racism and race today is this hmm. white understanding that those who are in power and position are the only ones who have a voice. Hmm. And so... Uh, I went through that process, and one of the first places I went was Burkina Faso in the uh, northern part of Africa. I went with Danny Gomez, who's now the regional director for Africa. At the time, he was a director of that area, and he introduced me to a group of about 20, 25 people from various nearby countries around Burkina Faso. They had met, they were having workshops and he allowed me to do a focus research group with them. And I remember as they went around, they introduced themselves around that circle. One would say, you know, they'd say their name, and then they would say, you know, what country they're from. And I asked them, I said, how do you describe your place or your position in the church? And most of them would describe it as evangelist. They'd say, well, I'm an evangelist. Most of them said that, and when they got through, I asked them, I said, can you describe what you do as an evangelist? One of them, they would say, well, we were right across the border from another neighboring country where 99 or more percent of the people are Muslim. There's no Christian witness or Christian presence there. And so our church has sent us to go there to be a Christian witness. We've gone there to live we start a farm, and we live there, and, and we look for what we call a person of peace, someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, but someone who's willing to give us an open door into their community. And they say we begin to pray, and God begins to lead people to us, and people 
start to come to Christ. And we always look for someone who's a leader. And, and they said, we, we work with that leader until they can be the developing pastor of a new church there. And then they said, we sometimes move on to another area to do that. And person after person, very similar type of stories. And I said, well, to me, that sounds like what I would call a missionary. I, you know, the classical definition of what you would think a missionary is, they were doing it. I said, why don't you call yourself missionary? And they said, well, a missionary is a white person with resources. Mm-hmm. They said, we're not white and we don't have resources. But I, I noticed something in that experience and in a lot of other experiences that mission was happening from the very grassroots, not because it was the organization doing it, not because they had money or resources, but because they innately knew that this is who they were as a follower of Jesus. They knew this is what people who follow Jesus, this is what they do, and this is what the church does. And so as a result of, this is a long way to get there, but partly as a, as a result of all of those different interviews and that research, I, I found that one, you have this grassroots expression of a different way than we had been expressing missions and missionaries that sometimes was completely off the radar screen of what we even think of. And also that churches as a whole were also seeing themselves as the missionary. That doesn't mean they still weren't sending people, but they saw this was the task of the whole church to look in their own communities to those who were in places where there was little or no gospel witness. And also people who were on the very margins, how they were reaching out to them. And so when I got back, I began to think, you know, you know, I teach missiology and, and those things uh, at seminary, and I thought, well, I wonder what this would look like in a U.S. church. And so I went to, we have co-senior pastors where I attend, and I asked them, I said, would you let me volunteer as a mission pastor at our church for a few years to begin to explore this? You know, they didn't have to pay me a salary, and which was a good thing for them. And it also gave me a certain sense of freedom. They gave me an incredible amount of freedom, probably more freedom than they should have. But they gave me a, a, a freedom to work and to begin to explore this. And, and as we did, uh, we pulled together a group of about 10, 15 people from the church. Actually, what we did is we, we asked anyone who'd be interested in working with me to, to dream of a different way to express missions from our church to just let me know. And I think God kind of put the group together because it was an incredible group of about 10, 15, very diverse people, ethnically, from different work experiences. And we just began to explore what would it mean for our church to think of itself as mission, as a whole church. Our church isn't real big. It's a church, mid-sized church, about three or 400 people. But it's a church that had has traditionally sent out short-term mission teams like nearly every year. There's several retired missionaries and executive type people in the church who have a lot of investment in a certain pattern of missions that we've been practicing for years and years. When we got this group together, we started to think and we said, we thought, well, what would it mean for our church to not just go and do mission things, but to be mission? And that picks up a lot on Leslie Newbigin. If you're not familiar with Leslie Newbigin, he as a great writer, but he was a missionary for years and years in India. When he went back to Great Britain, where he was from, he said, you know, I'm finding that the place that sent me needs the gospel as much as the place I went to. 
One of the great contributions that Leslie Newbigin has, he was he said when he was a missionary, they would baptize new converts. And as they baptize these new converts, when they come up out of the water, they would say, we have worked with you, we have discipled you up to this point, but now you are the mission. Through you, the people in your village and people around you will know about Christ. It wasn't, you know, you're now a baby Christian. You've just been baptized, so you need to have several years until you have certain certificates and other things before you could ever do anything. But the fact that you now, that baptism is that initiation into the body of Christ. They say to be in the body of Christ means that we share the nature of God, and the nature of God is mission. Mission isn't a program or a side thing, but mission is God's very nature. And so that was a part of it. To be part of the body is to be sharing in that. And so we began to explore what that would look like in our local church. And we began to draw out some ideas of how we can move beyond thinking of church as some activity and program we do here and there. We send a team here. We send turkeys and things to people at Thanksgiving and doing projects to you know still keep doing those things, but it needs to come out of who we are. And I, I think that's really important in, in, right now as, as our nation is looking at issues of race and inequality and things. It's, it's an important basis, I think, that we didn't realize at the time. This is about three years ago. We started setting this up uh, about how the church would do that. In our first year, the month of September, we were going to set the base for this for the whole year. And you may you may have seen these yard signs that are up different places. The, I think the Episcopal Church designed them. But it says, love your neighbor who doesn't look like you, think like you, love like you, speak like you, pray like you, vote like you, love your neighbor, no exceptions. We bought these big banners from the Episcopal Church that said that. We put them on all the entrances of our church, and they're still there today. And that's become kind of an underwriting understanding that we love our neighbor, not just our neighbor who's like us and who mm -hmm. thinks like us. In our environment today, to think that we love our neighbor who doesn't look like us, mm -hmm. even our neighbor who doesn't vote like us, ouch, that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and even those who don't pray like us, those who may worship differently yeah. and may even be of a different religion, we still, we love them, not because of who they are, but because of who we are in Christ. If mission is our nature, then we can't help but love those who are different. One of the quotes we pulled up during this time was from Rachel Held Evans, and she says something like, the church is not a place for the worthy, but the church is a place for the hungry. Mm. And that very much expressed what we were moving toward, that the church should be a place that we gather all together. And what we have in common isn't that we all agree on everything, but we all are looking to Christ. And Christ is helping form us in that process. We started to use all of that as a foundation. How do we then be the people of God, be mission in the process, and not just have programs? And we're looking at a church that's done a lot of short-term mission, and we have cut out, at least for the last three years, we have not had any short-term mission trips because mm. we wanted to get it right first. How do we be mission and start thinking of that? So we opened it up to the church. We set that, and we asked if anybody has ideas of how we can live into this and dream with us, write out an idea proposal, and bring it to the group that we put together, and we want to start brainstorming. We had a few to be honest, that's our goal. We haven't quite got there where people just are coming up with ideas left and right, but we're 
I think we're starting to think that direction. One of the things we did in the first year during Lent, we had a book club we put together and we read James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. If you haven't read that, I highly encourage you to read that. Read it during Lent (laughs) because it will move you to think of the cross of Jesus in a whole different way. What it does is it's looking at the cross of Jesus from the perspective of being an African-American. And you read that story completely different depending on where you're approaching it. If you are a white person, you look at that story differently. You see it as, this is my personal salvation that's tied to this. And a black person will look at that very much and identify with the suffering of Jesus. And the suffering of Jesus helps their own suffering somehow make a little bit bit more sense, Mm. if, if that's possible. But what we did with that book club is we had a group of people from our church that's primarily a white church. And Kansas City, like a lot of cities in the United States, but Kansas City is very divided by streets, and geographically it divides the ethnicities. There's one main street that goes through the middle of east and west called Troost. And if you look at an ethnographic type of map, one side of Troost is like 99% black. The other side is nearly 99% white. Mm. And there's a huge story behind that of a lot of the redlining laws and things that would not allow black people to buy houses beyond that. And that would, anyone who bought on the white side would have to sign these contracts that they wouldn't sell to someone who's black or Jew. And... For those of us who are part of the Church of Nazarene, it raises a lot of questions because we have our headquarters right along that street, and most of the people lived on the side, and I'm sure they had to sign those type of contracts. It's a division. It's a major division. And people, if you are on the east side that's primarily black, the values of of those houses do not go up. People cannot get a loan at a low interest rate because there's just a lot of things that make this division enormous. So what we did on the reading club... I had started a friendship with a pastor, uh, a missionary Baptist church that's on the east side of Troost, a traditional African-American black church. And I asked them if they would be willing to have a group of people in their church to join the book club. So we were all reading this book together and discussing it. Most of the people in our church had never really, really dealt with race and everything at this level. And we had an online discussion for the first part of it. I made a guide and we discussed online, which there were some good conversations. But the last two we had together in person. We found a neutral place in the middle and we came together. I had two United Methodist pastors who are both black who led the conversation. Two things that were important for us as a white church. One is that our partner was a church that really was stronger than us. They were larger, had more resources, and that was important. And also that the people leading the discussion were black. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that because our whiteness, and I, I'm very white and I wear that, and our tendency, our whiteness is just to kind of plow over other people, and we needed to listen. Yeah. And so that forced us into the position of listening. We had that conversation, and actually it was quite an interesting conversation. We talked about the book, but it was very eye-opening. If you live in a white world, which I've grown up in a white world, you experience life very differently than if you live in a black world. Even if you live next door to each other, you do. Mm. Uh, Just your world is different. You know, I explain like this. Have you ever seen the movie Sixth Sense or Shutter Island? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Both of those movies, I love those movies. What they do, though, the whole movie, you think 
you're seeing reality. You know, Sixth Sense, you have Bruce Willis do that whole thing. He thinks he's seeing what reality is. And he doesn't realize from the very beginning he's dead. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert, several Spoiler years later. But <laughs> Come on. He's dead in the whole movie. And he doesn't know it to the end. And I think a lot of times living in a white world like that, we think we're seeing reality. Mm. And it's not quite reality. Like, Let me give you an example. I grew up in a white world where police were the good guys. And they're here to protect and to serve. And, and they were. They were here to protect me and serve me. If I worked in a white world and I work hard enough, I'm able to support my family. And the financial system is basically there to help me gain equity in a home, mm-hmm. to save money. And the systems are in place to help me do that. As a white person, I saw myself as living in a country where I could freely move around and be accepted by other people. Mm-hmm. In my home growing up, we never had to discuss race right, or how to be safe because of my race. And even today, if I get tired of even thinking about all this racial stuff, all this is, marches have been going on. And there'll come a point where if you're white, you go, you know, I'm just kind of tired of this. And, you know, if you're white, you can just step aside and put it on the back shelf and not think about it anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. But if I'm black, none of those things are my reality. Mm-hmm. None of them. The police are here. They're meant to protect others from me. (laughs) I have to work twice as hard Mm -hmm. as my white counterpart to get the same job. Uh, Loans for homes and places that I gain equity may or may not be a possibility Mm -hmm. for me. And so that day, we had to do a whole lot of listening (laughs) as we heard this explained. And most of I had several people in our church, they said, you know, I never had thought about that. Mm I never thought when I go into a store that, you know, I go and look what I'm looking for. And a lot of people who are in the black side of that conversation, they say, when I go into a store, I notice that security people follow me around the store. Yeah. I realize that I'm treated differently. And it was an incredible eye-opener as we had that conversation. And to be honest, I have never been in that type of conversation. Most of the people who are white said, I have never been in a discussion about race, especially with black people. Mm-hmm. Most of the people on the black side of the equation said, we have never been in a discussion about race with white people. Mm-hmm. And it was graceful and yet very difficult. One, at one point in the conversation, one person from our church, a white person, had a good intention, said, you know, when I see a black person, I don't see color. Mm. And one of the women said, she said, sir, she said, let me correct you. If you don't see color, you don't see me because I'm a black woman and that's who I am. Yeah. And she says, that's nothing to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. It's okay to see me for who I am. Those were very healthy conversations. When we finished that time, everyone was saying, you know, what do we what do we do from here? What can we do? And so we decided to think of at least one project to do together. And this came somewhat out of the work I had done in looking at partnerships and collect what they call collective impact, how various organizations work together for one cause. Our two churches worked together. The pastor there said he didn't know if the challenge was more that it was a black church and a white church or it was a Baptist and a Nazarene church. He said the people, some of the people in their church were more concerned that they were working with a church that was a Nazarene church. But we decided to work together with an organization called Sleep in Heavenly Peace that makes beds for families who don't have beds. A lot right. of families, their children sleep on the floor at night. What we did is we we housed, we had this project that we were going to do together. Both churches, we made lists. We knew there were families 
that we were connected to on both sides of the equation. And it wasn't a matter of us, the white church, going to do mission to or for the black congregation. It was we were doing it together. Mm-hmm. I used a, you'll, you'll understand this, Brian, a, a Spanish term, a misión conjunto. It was mission that we did together. Mm-hmm. And and that's the way we were, we were approaching that. And so it was an incredible day. We had about 120 people out there. I've got a picture of the whole, you know, all mixture, all of us together. And we were working together for common cause. And we built all these bunk beds. The news station from Kansas City came out. And uh, and, and we did it at, actually, we did it at the, the Missionary Baptist Church. They had this multi-layered covered parking. And this was right in the middle of summer when it was blistering hot and in case of <laughs> rain or whatever. So we had this nice covered parking. And we had this together. And then we had a meal together. And it really was. It was a good time that we talked about some difficult issues issues first, and then we enjoyed doing life together. And mm-hmm. kind of the ironic thing, somebody from our church came up and said, Pastor, this is great, but w- I want to know when we're going to do a mission trip. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you just missed it. We did a trip across town. I said, here, look at this. We all came together. And in a sense, the trip is this journey we have together. Yeah. And I said, and we didn't have to be give money to the airline industry. Mm. Uh, think of it. <laughs> <laughs> But that's partly the the mentality. We're trying to move to see mission not as a trip, but this comes out of who we are. Mm. The conversations have continued with that particular church. We it was it wasn't really ever a formal partnership per se. Okay. But uh, we had set up to do two different activities on both sides of the equation. Mm-hmm. There's some things that they can do. They have actually have more resources, financial resources and things than we do. But we were going to do some things on both sides that would enhance the ministry of both congregations. This was right before COVID hit. And so yeah. that was all blown out of the water. This year, we were going to talk about poverty. And that was going to be the next thing of, of loving our neighbor in the sense it doesn't live like us. Mm-hmm. And instead, we, because of all of the racial issues and everything, we uh, we picked up the book by Daniel Hill called White Awake. And uh, mm-hmm. a good book, by the way, a really good book. I chose that book. Instead, I originally looked at White Fragility, which is a great book. I would highly recommend that. The title of it says it all. I mean, we are fragile. <laughs> and, and I get that. And so Daniel Hill's book gets to the same issues, but it does it in a little more gentle way. And then, it, 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 I mean, you still have to deal with the difficult issues. And so, matter of fact, we're in the middle of that right now. It's This is just the white group right now that's having this discussion to understand our whiteness mm-hmm. and what that means. That's our, our ongoing mission. And I, Leslie Newbigin uses a term called uh, missionary ecclesiology. Basically, what that means is the church is missionary. Mm. And that's what we're trying to understand in the context in which we live. People look at the church and they say, well, every other organization is is standing up for the rights of the marginalized. Is the church doing the same thing? <laughs> yeah. And we should be. And, and, and we don't want it to be a program, but mm. we want it to be the nature of who we are. And so we're trying to do some things that will be long term. Actually, the, our partner from the Missionary Baptist Church and a couple of others, I've asked, I said, what can we do long term to change the nature of who we are so that the mistakes that we have made, which we have, we've made mistakes, and our local church has made mistakes as well of how we thought about others and especially the black other. 
just a few, this is kind of just a working thing that we're working on, is one, we want to speak boldly and regularly about injustice mm-hmm. and how we respond. You know, not very many white pastors preach about this from the pulpit, and that's a sign of our whiteness, because we don't have to. And we want to to do that regularly. We want to continue relationships with black churches and other churches of people who are on the margins of society so that we learn from them. And there we're also reminded that this Christian journey is not a white journey. It's all of us together. And and a third part, which is vital, is to look more of how we disciple in our white church. I think we've missed something along the process of discipling so that it's, it's more biblical and theological about the nature of God and how that impacts how we look at race, how we look at justice, and different issues like that. And that's a part of who we are. And we need to find ways to engage our elected officials. We need to be an advocate and stand in solidarity around issues of policing, incarceration, education, housing, all these things that impact people around us. It's easy to ignore these things if they don't impact you, but we don't have that luxury because in the body we're all one. There's an African term called Ubuntu. Ubuntu means I am because of who we are. In the body of Christ, if my black brothers and sisters are suffering, that means we're all suffering. (laughs) And my identity comes as the identity we have together. We want to continue to think through that of just who we are. That's a long way around your question (laughs) of what we're doing. But uh, that's what we're working on. And it's, it's an exploratory thing. It's kind of nice since my, I don't have a salary with it and I don't, you know, I've got other things. But it's nice just to join along people in our church. We don't have it all figured out. I don't think we will on this side of heaven. But we have to keep on see what does it mean to follow Jesus? How does following him change us? The neighborhood I live in, not very many people well, Harlini are followers of Jesus. A lot of people have been hurt by churches in different ways. There's, I have several couples uh, in our on our block who are same-sex couples and things that they feel alienated very far from the church. And one of my neighbors asked me a while back, he says, I see you're part of this church. He says, what in the world is Nazareth? What's a Nazarene? And I said, well, a Nazarene is someone who's from the margins. They're not the person from the power, from the center of power and control, but they're someone from the margins. And I said, that's who Jesus was. He was a person from the very margins. And I said, our aim is to be not only people from the margins, but to be people who advocate for and stand in solidarity with those who are on the margins. And he says, yeah. He says, that sounds like it's real. (laughs) And I said, well, we hope so. That's part of what we're we're working toward being and doing. Mm-hmm. So. This word Ubuntu, I am because of who we are. It's the idea of this collective identity that my individual identity is not isolated, but it's connected to everyone else. Yeah, I can't live my faith just with those who are like me, because <laughs> mm-hmm. in other words, I I just want to be with people who are like me because that's the right thing. My identity is based on collectively who we are together. And I think that includes the church, but I think it goes into society a bit further than that. I really do think that we're at a point where society is being shaken up a bit. And I think, I know we are. We're being shaken up, and Lord help us if we go back to being the way we were before this. Yeah, We are shaken to understand that, you know, church is not limited to a building. 
Mm-hmm. It's not limited to just these practices that we do, but it's at the very heart of who we are. I hope and I pray that somehow in the midst of this, as terrible as it is, people losing their lives and so many terrible things, that somehow God will start to mold us and change us and that we won't just go back to the way things were before. I just love that African word that uh, David used called Ubuntu, which is I am because of who we are. And mm-hmm. we really need to get back to the we, that we are in this together, that we are a global family, a global community created by God. Mm-hmm. So again, just to uh, thank him for uh, sharing that experience and that wisdom with us today as we continue to learn, learn what we can do as a local church and people of a local church to be a part of this bigger church body. That's our faith conversation. Time now to move into Music Matters. So in Music Matters, we celebrate the generational differences of music. I bring a song, Jake brings a song, and we dive back into our oldie but goldie, Into the Vault. So I have a brand new song. Brand new. Brand new. Brand new. And we haven't heard something new from him in a while, Mm. but you definitely know who he is. And he has a guest on this song as well. Chris Tomlin. Oh, Mr. Worship himself. He sings more of his songs than anything else, I think, around the world. But uh, Chris Tomlin has a brand new song. He's joined on this song by, they used to be called Lady Antebellum. They're now called Lady Mm -hmm. A. Mm -hmm. Changed their name. And uh, so they're joining him on this song. If you know Hilary Scott from that group, well, we play one of her songs uh, off of her Christian album called Hilary Scott and the Scott Family. But this is a brand new song from Chris Tomlin. It is called Who You Are To Me. Give it a listen. Chris Tomlin with Lady A. Of your mercy, your goodness, Lord, you're the end of me. Who you are. Yeah. I didn't know Lady, well, I mean, usually, but Lady Annabelle. I didn't know. You didn't know they changed their name? Well, no, I knew they changed their name, but I just didn't know. I thought we were like into the Christian. They are. It's just interesting. Absolutely. Well, my song, I've mentioned this band before. It's kind of like what I do. But in a bigger sense, because they write music. So Southeastern University in Florida, they have a ministry team kind of group and they have a lot. It's a lot bigger scale. They do a lot of songwriting. They just released like a kind of, you know, how like every artist is doing a COVID EP album kind of thing. (laughs) Well, they released theirs and I'm using the title track from it. It's called A Thousand Generations. And it's just a very interesting song because the words just speak. And Mm -hmm. so here is a snippet of A Thousand Generations by SEU Worship. You always bring new stuff to me that I don't know about. I knew I knew SEU worship. Because I actually have a couple buds that go there. Yeah, I met them uh, when I was at camp last year. Okay, cool. All right, well now it's time to go back in time, dig into the vault for our oldie but goldie. Okay, we're going back to uh, 1992, seven years before I was born. This lady in the 90s, 80s, and 90s was uh, a big artist in Christian music. She's still out there. She's also sung backup uh, in mainstream. You don't know an artist named Taylor Dane at all, do you? No. Yeah, I thought so. But uh, Kathy Tricoli, Christian artist, used to sing backup for Taylor Dane way back in the 80s when Taylor was a big pop star. And uh, she's been doing Christian music all along since then. An incredible alto voice. Um, So we're going to hear from uh, 1992. This is the number 29 song of the year that year. It's called Love Has Found Me Here. It's Kathy Tricoli. Love, love has found me here. 
good one. It's got a great voice. It's great, a, powerful it's, it's alto a, voice. What, remember the word I taught you? Lit. It's a. It's a bop. There you go. Okay. There good you job, go, Dad. I try to get the lingo I'm in. I'm proud. Well, that wraps up Music Matters. And we're going to move ourselves into Culture Shock. In Culture Shock, we celebrate someone who is making a difference in the culture. Can be a celebrity type figure, actor, sports figure, newscaster, or it can be your average Oshmo, as Jake likes to say. This week, and I think we've mentioned him before in Culture Shock, Denzel Washington, great actor, award winner, Oscar winner. Of course, he grew up in a Christian home. His father was a minister. I didn't know that. You did not know that? Mm Mm-mm. Indeed. And recently, he had a live Instagram discussion on his spiritual journey and relationship with God. It was actually hosted by Pastor A.R. Bernard, who is pastor of the Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. And so they sat down to do an Instagram live to talk about his faith journey. And it was a 33-minute long video. If you want to search for it, you can find it. Denzel mentioned that he'd given his life to Christ at three different times when he was younger. You know, growing up a pastor's kid, I'm sure he was in church every Sunday, every time the church was open, even when the church wasn't open, I'm sure he was there. Mm-hmm. But he talked about an encounter he had that he describes as supernatural back in the 1980s during a church service, an encounter where he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, quote, that it scared him. Mm. He said, wait a minute. He goes, I, I didn't want to go this deep. I want to party, he said, <laughs> all right? Uh, he's facing with the reality of two yeah. different worlds there. You know, today, Washington is 65 years old. At the time, he was at West Angeles Church of God in Christ in Los Angeles area. And he um, went to church with Robert Townsend, another actor. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to, to go down to the altar, he says, you know, this time I'm just going to go down there and give it up and see what happens. And I think a lot of people get to that point. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's called complete surrender yeah. there. Uh, Washington continues, I went in the prayer room and I gave it up and let go and experienced something I've never experienced in my life. So after this service, Denzel Washington reaches out to his mother about this intense experience that he had. He said, it felt like I was going up in the air and my cheeks were filled. In response, his mother asserted, oh no, that's the devil you're purging, is what she said. Well, Washington added, it was a supernatural, said once in a lifetime experience that I couldn't completely understand at the time. He went on to say, it kept me grounded in spite of myself. I mean, I accepted it. I definitely experienced it, but I wasn't ready to live it. I don't know how old I was then, but I wasn't ready to live it then. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's gone through that kind of experience. Again, talking to his mother, he said, you've done a lot of good, but it's time for you to do good the right way. She Mm. added, you can't buy your way into heaven. So it's just amazing to see Denzel Washington having that real experience, but it's even more important when someone who has that kind of platform Mm. is able to do Instagram live. Yeah fully share that experience and to share their spiritual journey, their Christian journey and what that looks like, because that then influences others when he is real and transparent. And that's a beautiful thing. So we love celebrating when people that have that kind of influence and platform are able to share that platform. That is called culture shock. And that's what this is all about. 
So thanks again to everyone who uh, tuned in this week. I want to thanks once again to our guest, uh, David Wesley, who shared with us again about the experience of coming together, of the church being mission, and some of the things dealing with the racial injustice happening in our nation and really globally that the church that he expressed so perfectly, again, to speak boldly and regularly about the injustice that we face, to build those relationships with black churches and to learn from them, Mm. to realize that this Christian journey that we are on is not a white journey, and then to reevaluate and look at how we are discipling ourselves. Have we missed something? And finally, that we need to engage our officials and how we can assist them. The church is not an entity unto itself. We are in community. We need to be in community and making a difference in community together. Church be mission. And if you want to contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page, and you can find that in the Shine.fm Facebook page in the group tab, the Kitchen Table group. It's a private group, but we'll let you in. You just kind of keep the conversation going there. If you have questions that you want us to talk about, if you have music that you want us to listen to, or you know someone personally that is making a difference in your culture, we just want to know that, because I think I, I know me and Dad personally love the average Joe Schmoes, even though it's a hard time to do something, but it's happening out there. So yeah, the Facebook group is a great way to contact Contact us. So thanks for tuning in this week. Have a great week. Stay salty and lit. Thanks for listening to The Kitchen Table on the Shine.fm Podcast Network from Olivet Nazarene University. Be sure to subscribe for more content delivered each week on faith, music, and culture.